it. Like in an ideal world, you know, we're a car dealership, right? Yeah. Uh, we've all gone car shopping before, right? Yeah. It's hard as shit to get out of that first car dealership without buying that car. Yeah. I mean, that holds you hostage, basically. Yeah. Right. I remember one time having to get up and just pound the table. Give me my keys back, guys. Yeah. <laughs> right now. Like, I'm out of here. I mean, it was brutal, right? So if we can have that same kind of mentality of, hey, if we can be that first asset or manage that first asset on that road, the probability of you capturing that renter is sophisticated or not, it becomes an emotional decision at the end of the day, even for a sophisticated renter. Yep. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering business, ideas, entrepreneurship, investing, and life. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. I'm very excited to have a very good friend of mine, Craig Lashley, the president and CEO of Valiant Residential here with me today. Craig and I have been working together for a couple of years now. Uh, Craig is one of the hardest working, um, biggest leaders in the real estate industry. He has developed a huge company focused around multifamily and property management. And I think today we'll have a really fascinating conversation. So thanks for joining me on the show. Glad to be here, Chris. Tell me about the early days of how Valiant came to be and the shift from your original role into what it is today. Absolutely. So Valiant was previously known as Settlement Investment Management Company, which was founded in 74 by one of my mentors, uh, George Martin, and another mentor of mine, uh, Mike Zimmer. Um, And those guys uh, created a great property management company, but it was solely focused on owner operator. Um, So they buy a couple deals with a group of investors, really manage them well uh, through that time frame. And uh, then you know, kind of the late 80s came about, the RTC crisis uh, in the early 90s, uh, where by where they had to, you know, essentially change their business strategy altogether. So they partnered with a group called MLG out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who was also looking for kind of the owner operator arm, uh, but there became more of a private equity brand. So uh, from the late 90s uh, to the mid 2000s or so, uh, MLG operated uh, underneath the settlement or SIMC brand uh, here in DFW. Um, I actually got my career start at MLG yep. growing up in Wisconsin uh, in 2000 and late 2005, early 2006. Go Packers. Go Packers. Man. Go Bucks. <laughs> Go Bucks. Oh, Brock Who, lost last night. Okay. Is that NBA? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I only start watching towards this time. Man. <laughs> but uh and so, so I started in the group in 2005, 2006 as an investment analyst. I kind of grew up through the through the ownership side of the business and saw a real opportunity in the property management side of the business. So, uh, migrated down here to Dallas about five years ago, changed the brand from SIMC or Settlement Investment Management Company. Also launched third party uh, services relative to property management. And now, here we so are when today. you got down to Dallas, did 
did SIMC and MLG have several properties down here that you were basically coming to manage and take over? Yeah, we had about 1,200, 1,800 units at that time Got that it. We, we were owner managing, uh, which was a nice fundamental base yep. you know, to start from. So you get here five years ago with 1,800 units. How many units are you managing today? Yeah, we're about 13,500 units now throughout the Metroplex. And so a little under a 10x growth. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Let's, let's start that. Let's start that story. Yeah. Uh, so you come down, um, you take over DFW five years ago. And one of the things that has always really fascinated me about you is your ability to one handle a lot, um, and two work with a lot of different people. Um, let's start with people. Did you know about hiring people and working with people prior to coming down here? No, no, I, you know, I didn't grow up necessarily. Um, you know, I, I had a great family structure and my family was really hard workers, but none of them really hold, held even middle upper management roles. So I had to really develop my leadership style uh, on my own and just watch kind of my mentors. So, you know, I credit a lot of that to the, you know, the three core mentors that I had through, you know, my business life, which you know, George Martin, Mike Zimmer and and Tim Wallen inside of the three uh, now my partners uh, in business, but uh, just watching those guys, how they interact with people and then also taking the best of each one of them and trying to develop, you know, the best pieces, right? So it's, you know, I'm more of a fixer than I am like maybe a visionary and developer, right? Yep. I, I like taking stuff that I learned from various people and I like to take all the best stuff and kind of build a fundamental, you know, foundation from there it's huge when you got down here how many people were working we had about 25 people here in the office uh between the properties in our corporate office there was only three of us in the corporate office though um and now yeah we have uh nearly 30 in our corporate office between our accounting team and our our team here uh in dallas and then also we have over almost 300 total team members across the the platform. So it's been incredible growth. It has been incredible growth. What are there certain phases along that journey from three to 30 or from 30 to 300 that you started noticing like big differences in the way the company was running? Like once you get to 10 people, things change. Once you get again to 20 people, things change or. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, there's like you mentioned earlier, just the, you know, the, I think all entrepreneurs go through this, these stages of at first you're able to plug all the holes, uh, in the dam, right? Yourself, yep. you can put your fingers in all 10 of the holes. Right. Yep. And then, you know, before you know it, you're trying to use your fists and yep. there's a little spring here or there. And then before you know it, you realize that like, I can't do this anymore myself. I've got to actually have really talented people. So I think you go through this phase of when you're a young entrepreneur, you're really searching value out yep. there, right? You're not necessarily bringing in, especially the, the particularly the top talent because you're, you're cost cognizant, right? Yep. It costs money to bring in top talent, talent. and uh, those people can't really help you plug that many holes, but they help you get to that next step. Yep. And then you have kind of phase migration from there, and then it kind of gets it gets more challenging, but also more fun. Yep. Um, because now you're dealing with people that you know, may know more than you do in that particular space and you're learning from them as much as you're helping kind of mentor and grow the business uh, as well. 
I don't want to say it in a way that not everybody that had showed up wasn't talented, but when was when were you able to finally afford that first big kahuna? I was worried that you're going to make me call somebody out. No, No, we've got a lot of great, talented people inside the organization now. I mean, our our stable is full of thoroughbreds, you know, um, when it comes to, you know, our team as a whole. I think, you know, when we got to roughly 5000 units or so and started to get to a revenue level that really was supportive of, you know, moving the office to a bigger space. And it also afforded us to bring in a lot of the things that you know, are more culturally based. In the beginning, you know, the advantage is that you can move quickly and I can touch everybody and everybody understands the vision directly. Yep. Midterm, you're trying to figure out, okay, I can't touch everybody and I can't deliver the vision directly anymore. So there's gonna be some there's gonna be some game of telephone that happens and some loss and translation. So now you gotta kind of pick that up with like benefits and culture, right? Yep. So so, you know, as we've grown, I think you know, around 5,000 units was where we really got to a place where, you know, we could start to really double down and invest in our talent and then also really focus in on culture, which we've really done a great job the last two years. And we're hoping, you know, that that will continue throughout the many, many years ahead. For sure. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. It does. It does. What do you do? Like, what is your day to day or week to week? How do you plug yourself in now? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been an ever evolving beast. Even in the you know last couple of months, it's um, as as we continue to grow. I mean, March alone we grew twenty percent, um, which was wow. you know which was an incredible month for us as a as a group. And then you know we'll grow another fifteen percent between the time we're talking today to the end of July. Wow. Um, on top of that, so you know it's 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 evolving every day at this point. I used to be able to just, you know, kind of leave. I was fairly unstructured, right? Because I just, everything I do is work. Um, I do have, uh, you know, my family time, but for the most part, you know, 10 to 14 hours a day really revolved around just trying to manage the teams, um, try to gain structure, yep. create strategy, right? And yep. then also, you know, bleed into the the culture discussions all the time. So. So it's the beauty of real estate is, as you know, there is no one particular thing that uh, that we do on a day to day basis. It never it never ends. It I think it's interesting growing 20 um, percent in March and then 15 percent between now and July. And for anybody listening, you might think, oh, wow, at any point in time, you might be able to grow 20 percent in any one month. And I think especially maybe where I'm headed with this and the lesson here is it's really been the last six years of grinding and putting in the hours and compounding. And then you have these moments of like bursts where you, you grow. So to say like you grew in 20% in March, like that's what we see on the financials and that's what's on the record. You know, that's been thousands of hours in the making of getting in the right spot to take on that, have people trusting you. And um, now you're at these years where we double or triple in size are really three years in the making. It just so happens that it happens now. Yeah, we have a super long sales cycle if you think about it, right? We, we are asking people to either, you know, if they're acquiring a new property to trust them, uh, trust us with their checkbooks um, and all their expenses, all their income, you know, or essentially asking them to do that just on, you know, either reputation alone, right? Because yep. a lot of times we don't have an existing relationship with them. And if they have an existing relationship and they're looking at moving, which 
a fair amount of our current clients have moved off of maybe some of the more national brands that are less cost conscious um, and maybe less you know scrappy than we are at this point. You know, those people are are really taking a risk, right? Yep. They're, they're they're jumping a current relationship, divorcing it, and essentially coming, you know, over to this this new beast that they have. They they're not they know what they've been sold, but they don't necessarily, you know, they're not necessarily confident that the execution is there. For sure. Are you going after people like is your pipeline you've identified people that have X amount of units in their portfolio? Maybe besides us, but X amount of units in their portfolio and you don't you don't want to take on any less than that? Or are you going to people saying, hey, you need to have a couple managers, not just us? Or can you give us half your portfolio? Do you want it all? Or Yeah, I think it's a lot of situational uh, game, right? We get first first, you know, we're we're a young company, yep. although we've been around for 30 plus years. Really, our third party business has been around for five or six now. Um, we're fairly young guys as well with long ways to go in our careers, yep. uh, knock on wood. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, ultimately reputation uh, means a lot more to me than it probably does to maybe a CEO that has, you know, 13 layers of middle management disconnecting them from a property level. Yep. Um, so so for me, it's, a, it's as much about assessing the client and as part of the partnership and yep. making sure that we're going to do a great job. Because a lot of times, you know, if they're not localized to DFW, then we have to be at some level of a unit size. Otherwise, we just can't service them well. Yep. Right. And not servicing them well will only land us both yeah. in trouble down the road. So we focused a lot of our business here locally, um, which is why we've also grown so quickly. We you know, A lot of management companies will take a client and the client will want to grow outside like you guys. Right. Yep. You all grew to El Paso. And we didn't follow you out there because yep. we don't have a platform out there. Yep. You know, a lot of management companies would create a platform just for that client. Right. But we have confidence in what we deliver in our product. Um, and if you go to another shop, I'm confident that you won't find a better product. No, for sure. And I think property management, um, I don't want to say it's not, uh, it doesn't have the best reputation's the wrong word. Property management's hard. And it is, it's not the sexy part of our industry, but you have found a way to make it sexy. And I think it's because if I was saying, what is the biggest opportunity within real estate over the next 10 years, using technology as kind of a base layer, but the property manager is the person touching the tenant. They are the people that are gathering the data. They are the people building the relationships. So while on paper, it might not always be the most sexy part or the late night phone calls of my toilet's broken and I need someone here now or I'm pissed. If you get past that and you say, well, what are all the other opportunities? Property management has so much room to run. So maybe I'll start with a question of what separates a good property manager from a bad property manager? It's all about focus at the end of the day, yeah. right? Um, unlike tech companies and other companies that grow quickly and, you know, the metrics can be skewed. We're a human capital intensive business. Um, and we're basically, you know, cause we're service based, but our product is really, really human capital intensive, right? If you think about the peer dynamics of, uh, property management, it's kind of crazy on the multifamily side, particularly oh. commercial less so. You're going to take a basically an LLC, which is an individual business, yep. called the same as like a gas station or a restaurant, right? For sure. 
you're going to then plug in a property manager. And so if you don't have your eye on the ball or create systems uh, that are forward thinking mm -hmm. and use the technology that's out there, then you are going to get crushed yep. um, because in our business, it's also interesting that as, a, as an owner, you likely see a decision that was made at the property level 90 to 120 days later. Yep. So if you plan on reacting to a decision that was made that could potentially cost you tens of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars in yep. value, you know, you're not going to see that decision best case scenario 90 to 120 days. And that's if you've got your eye on the ball as an owner, yep. right? So if your property management company isn't forward thinking and using technology to help bridge the gap of that decision making process, which is what, you know, we uh, we're doing inside of our shop right now, right? Then, you know, you're behind the times for sure. Are there any items when y'all take over a portfolio that's maybe been mismanaged or you take over it from someone that you know, maybe it was their first deal and they tried managing it on their own. Are there any kind of like easy, low hanging fruit that maybe somebody listening, if you were to say, if you just focus on even these couple things, whether you hire us or you're just doing your own deal, make sure these things are in line and, and that, that will at least get you a leg up in your journey to make your property more profitable. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's incredible takeover properties from some of the largest property management companies in the world uh, down to the most fundamental um, singular asset owners that you would think had their eye on their the ball of their own asset. Right. And you find the same things. Yep. You find service contracts that are on month to month basis. Like whether you own 10,000 units, 100,000 units or 2000 units it or, or less even. You know, certainly you're going to get better pricing if you're contractually into a, uh, an agreement for more than a month to month basis, right? right? No different than rent. Um, so immediately you can go through the service contracts and find savings 95% of the time. It, it's shocking that you can go through those things and just use your brain too, yep. right? Uh, and it's shocking how many times I walk into a leasing office of a professionally managed uh, company that you walk in a leasing office and they have these stupid scent machines that cost 50 bucks a month. Yep. Um, and then you go in the model and they have another one that's another 50 bucks a month. That's a hundred bucks a month, yep. you know, 1200 bucks a year. It's just processing like a scent. You go buy Glade plugins for, you know, 50 cents yep. and they can do the same thing, right? If that's the intent yep. of what you're trying to accomplish. So it's just, just use your brain, your, you know, um, at the end of the day of what are some of the things that, can produce the same result. Yep. It, you know, I don't necessarily have to, you know, have a contract with another individual to make my life easier there. Right. Yep. Um, so, so those are the things that I would definitely look at. Also, you know, bit, huge proponent of like res revenue management software and markets where you have enough data points. Um, you know, I think the mis misnomer misconception of revenue management is that you need a lot of units to make it work mm -hmm. I and mean, you can't have you can't operate revenue management on 50 units because it's quote unquote too expensive yep the price in our revenue management is per unit yep. so in its pure essence whether the savings it, whether the gain is four percent or three percent over the market whether you have two thousand units or 30 units if you're paying on a per unit basis the economics are the same right yep so i think that's a huge misnomer so a lot of times we'll take over deals that have you know, great data points for revenue management to work awesome. Yep. And, uh, you know, the, the owner's stuck away from it because either one, they're unsophisticated or two, they just have this misnomer of that 
you know, it's too expensive for us. Yep. God, that's, and, and just for anybody, a thousand dollar savings, a hundred bucks a month, that's 1200, but I'll just do simpler math. A thousand dollar savings at like a five cap, that's a 20, that's $20,000 in value. So by taking out those scent machines out of the two and plugging them in with little 50 cent wall plugs, you've just added 20,000 in value to your property. That's right. I mean, and it just adds up little by little by little. Exactly. Are you seeing that people are living differently now than they were maybe five, 10 years ago? Yeah, it's really interesting. There's a lot of things that are interesting kind of out there in the macro data right now. Um, certainly people are definitely li living differently um, in the apartment space and in single family homes as well. Yep. And there's certainly been a compression of single family home in demand as a whole by generations. Yep. Um, and you haven't really seen that decompress uh, because there's still so much demand uh, for apartments right. uh, as a whole over the top. Um, so there's certainly that, but there's also, you know, people are definitely living more efficiently mm -hmm. as we look at, you know, rent structures continuing to grow and the affordability index getting stressed yep. for a lot of individuals. Uh, they're trying to seek the same quality of living without too much of a sacrifice. So they're just compressing uh, their lifestyles. You've got a more transient, especially in DFW, really all the Texas markets yeah. more so than say the Midwest or some of the other maybe more conservative markets, you've got a much more transient tenant base. Yep. Uh, so those tenants don't necessarily have, they've got their big screen TV, which is incredible. Yep. I go into like the C-class deals, the A-class deals, everyone's got a 55, 60 inch TV. I have no idea that then they can't pay rent on time. I don't yeah. get it, but, <laughs> but anyways, the, uh, <clears throat> but people, you know, they get their TV, they got their uh, their bed and typically a couch and then they're, they're good to go, right? So. The cost of them moving and the, the quickness of them moving is, is fairly minimal. So so they, they can compress into those smaller spaces. Yeah. We talked a little bit about this, but the the affordability. So the urban core is starting to really fill out and people might be paying in higher in rent, but they're able to walk places, they're able to take Ubers, they're able to um you know, have their dry cleaning picked up with an app. They're able to have their dog walked with an app. And so they are buying, it's easier to buy time in the urban core because you have all these apps or these technology applications only work in denser areas. And so there's kind of this moat being created that if you want to move out to the suburbs or move into um, a spot where you're going to have to travel more, you're further away from the core you just lose a lot of amenities. And I think we don't necessarily talk about it that way, but there's kind of this moat being created around these metroplexes where people are getting more used to all these services that they don't even realize they only have because they're willing to live close. Does that yeah. make sense? No, it does definitely make sense. You know, we still see a lot of demand out to the suburbs and I don't know necessarily what that because what you're saying makes a lot of sense, right? Yep. Someone you know that's close to the urban core yep. can receive all those uh, services. You know what, what's interesting out there right now is the spread between you know B, C properties and A properties rents, especially in like a one bedroom space. Yep. You know a lot of of the core markets, you know, including Dallas, Fort Worth, you know, Houston, Austin, ones that we're really familiar with. Um, when we look at the macro data. The spread between a one bedroom rent in the A space 
non-urban core and the BC space is 50 to 100 bucks. Really? So you, you talk about, you know, affordability indexes and kind of the stress layer that might be there right now. It literally says that you, Chris, as a consumer um, of a one bedroom in maybe a suburban infill location, you're willing to go to an 80s upgraded deal for 50 bucks less than a brand new, you know, um, mid-rise or suburban wrap deal that's wow. A-class. Yeah, it's incredible. It's, yep. it's incredible to kind of see that spread. And it'll be interesting to see where that spread goes from here. Is there even a comparison in the core? Because there's so little B and C left in the core. Yeah, that's the thing, right? So B and C is stressed into the core. So you truly have probably more so in the core than maybe even in the suburbs. Right. You have, you know, you have a lack of options, right? Mm -hmm. So if it's a great located, you know, BC deal, maybe built in the 60s through 80s um, in the core, and there's only one or two of them, you're probably going to see a similar kind of spread, maybe a little bit wider because you have a little bit more of a sophisticated renter that's maybe shopping the internet more, or they're really, really putting time and thought into their process, and they're maybe a, you know, they're truly, you know, making a price conscious decision mm -hmm. um, versus renting out a need yep. um, per se. But you know, I hadn't studied maybe the urban core as much because there yeah. isn't enough data points really to to point to that BC market for sure. No. I've been I read an article recently. I've just been thinking a lot about it is even the folks that are going out to the suburbs and they're definitely winning on price. I mean, we have people here at Fort that, that commute 45 minutes each way. So that's an hour and a half a day. Let's call it 20 work days in a month. So they basically give up a day of their life each month. So 12 days a year to save 150, 200 bucks a month. How many people value time? Well, and I think I think the answer to your question is not enough, but I think with the internet and the access to information, this narrative will continue to, to push is time is what we're all after. That's why Uber was created. That's why all these different apps, at the end of the day, what we're really buying is time. The dry cleaning is still happening. Now we just have to press a button. We don't have to drive it 20 minutes there and 20 minutes back. But you kind of start making these breakdowns um, to people going, you're literally giving up 12 days a year to save 100 to 200 bucks a month. Now, they might say, great, that's awesome. And I get to save 200 bucks a month. Yeah. OK, well, 12 months. So $2,400 is worth 12 days of your life. Now, again, I'm not in a position to sit here and say that's a lot or a little. I just think there are several people that might be on the edge there. It'll just be interesting over time. Like if it's a tug of war, who kind of pulls that renter? Does they end up caving and paying $2,400 more but have a five minute commute? Or do they stick to 2,400 less? And not only do they have 2,400 less, but they also are paying a lot more in gas mileage and car and everything to get there. So right. I, I'm, I haven't done the, the full math, I just, if I was betting 20 years from now, would we be closer to the urban core or further out? I'm going to bet urban, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, it's a good bet that gas prices are going to go up over a long period of time. For sure. Right. Yeah. And, you know, when we were at $4 gas prices, you know, obviously it affected not only the auto industry and what people were buying and what had to be manufactured at that time, but also it affects where people are thinking about living relative to their jobs. For right? sure. 
because it really does you know stress people that it's simple right it's a simple adjustment some simple for someone to understand that yep. gas is doubled and now my my core expense has doubled i haven't met too many people and if i had to guess um you know not a lot of people maybe think like you do relative to time you yep. know at this point they um, don't and it's a you know it's definitely you know it's a it's a learned trait right and i don't know if a lot of you know parents necessarily teach to time as their kids grow up right so so until you really get absorption of that concept into the masses um you know it's it's going to be more based off of things that they can really understand For probably sure. and also based on how they want to live too right yeah. i mean and what they know if they grew up in the country and they love the country they're not going to live in the city they That's may have to work in the city for sure but they may love it you i mean you wouldn't move to dallas right dallas and fort worth aren't that far away no it's a perfect example right yeah, for sure yeah at your you bring up a really good point I, I don't think most people think about it and i don't think it's for everybody to think about i think folks that are in situations like us where every day we go to bed going there was not enough hours in this day we have something that fulfills us so much that it just never really ends um, you're always thinking about time. How do I get an extra 30 minutes back? I used to think that, I mean, when you really, I, I read something yesterday, uh, kind of funny. If you cancel one, a one, one hour meeting out of your week, by the end of the year, you will have gained a week and a half of work time back by canceling one, one hour meeting. Wow. I think of everything now in like 30 minute increments. Elon Musk thinks about everything in five minute increments. He won't take a meeting longer than five minutes. And anybody that's not busy would say, well, he's a fucking asshole. Only five minutes. And and I go, no, he's just a really efficient and knows there is only 24 hours in a day. And if I'm going to build the next car company of the world, I need to make every minute count. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm by any means there, but I would say five years ago, I didn't think of a one hour meeting any different than a two hour meeting. And now I'm I'm down to 20, let's get to 20 to 30 minutes. And um, now we're kind of riffing on time, but it's it's something I think you and I are forced to think about. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because there is no, there's no other options, right? You, you can build your teams out. You can try to do a lot of different things. You can be strategic about, you know, creating a lot of people, you know, I think you go through this phase too, where, you know, your exec and you, your company starts to get successful and your time really gets stressed and you start to think about, okay, I got to create a standardized schedule now. Yep. But what you're talking about is even that next layer of like really, really being, you know, uh, hard on your time, right? If the conversation's going, it's going well, you may have to like say, hey, 15 minutes, we got to wrap this up. Yep. So you wanted that now that I even think about when we first met, one of the things that I remember immediately having respect for is and you, it's, it's not like you went out s saying this. I think Jason told me or something, but you travel a lot, especially around DFW. You do not travel by car. You have an Uber drive you everywhere or a driver that works with you. And I asked you, well, tell me about that. And you said, well, I get on my laptop and I am working. So if I might be in the car for three or four hours, but I'm getting shit done. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's huge. Yeah. And a lot of people would say, I can't get a driver or I can't have somebody drive me everywhere all day. And then they go, okay, but how much is your time worth? Oh, well, I'm worth a lot. Okay. Well, that doesn't make total sense then. <laughs> um, so you do value time. 
it's a fundamental thing. Like I talked about going into apartment unit and just saying, all right, can I, can I fix this a different way? Right. Mm -hmm. Common sense. I mean, what you said is just core common sense, core common sense. Um, you made a comment a second ago, you were talking about maybe a more sophisticated renter that, uh, maybe spends more time on the internet or tours more deals. I want to talk a little bit about getting in the mind of why people rent and how they make decisions. Is there like an average of how many um, uh, communities a typical renter will look at before making a decision? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that there is necessarily an industry metric yeah. that's uh, that's out there and stated. I can give you kind of my professional yeah. kind of take on it. Um, first of all, it really it's highly dependent upon where the assets located, yeah. right? If I'm advising one of our clients during the acquisition process, I'm always advising them to first look at the location of the asset, not to be necessarily tucked back where you as a owner and a, as a potential renter would think it would be more serene or quiet and maybe more peaceful living. But as a owner of an asset and a manager of an asset, you want the stuff tucked right on the freeway where everyone can see it. And you can be that first stop off of the freeway exit. Like in an ideal world, you know, we're a car dealership, right? Yeah. We've all gone car shopping before, right? Yeah. It's hard as shit to get out of that first car dealership without buying that car. Yeah. I mean, that holds you hostage, basically. Yeah. Right. I remember one time having to get up and just pound the table. Give me my keys back, guys. Yeah. <laughs> right now. Like, I'm out of here. I mean, it was brutal, right? So if we can have that same kind of mentality of, hey, if we can be that first asset or manage that first asset on that road, the probability of you capturing that renter sophisticated or not, it becomes an emotional decision at the end of the day, even for a sophisticated renter. Yep. You know, they break out renter types into a bunch of different categories, um, but you certainly have your price conscious and sophisticated renter um, that you have to teach your leasing staff how to deal with. But for the most part, you have um, uh, the majority of the people at some level, it's an emotional decision to them of where they're gonna live, yep. right? Because you know, it sometimes it makes no sense why someone picked it, but maybe they just, they had an experience with either the leasing manager, the manager, the staff there that they loved, which is what we can control. Yep. Had a great experience going in the model. Maybe the layout was perfect for them, and they could they could really understand where their TV and their clothes would go. And you know, you're a big fan of like spin bikes, and I could see where that could go right by my bed over there, and it would work out perfect, right? So it's our job to kind of teach those leasing agents and those managers on how to you know sell to those different different focus types. But you know, generally speaking, you're looking at you know, you're doing well if you're closing 50 plus percent of your traffic Got it. Uh, in the door. Yeah, it's so true. Getting out of a car dealership and they're all on the freeway, damn it. Oh, There's man. no car dealership tucked away. Oh, man, and for anybody that's not that doesn't know Craig or hadn't seen the dudes built like a linebacker. So when he says, give me my fucking keys back, you're going to give him his keys back. <laughs> you better. <laughs> um, so people have made a decision. Are people moving more frequently than they used to, or is that a misnomer? No, that's interesting you bring that up. Yeah. yeah and you didn't even stage me into this one, but it's probably one of the most interesting things that's happened this year when we look at the macro data yeah. of, of apartment living. We've seen an uptick of roughly 10% in reten retention ratio year over year all really? out, out of nowhere. You know, our average retention ratio across the portfolio 
uh, was roughly 52% uh, last year in DFW, which a lot of people that may listen in other areas, oh man, that's, that's, that's low retention, right? Uh, but here we have such a transient renter, someone that's willing to move over five, 10 bucks because of the endless options. We sit on almost 800,000 units in the Metroplex, one of the largest in the country, if not the largest. Um, and what we've seen this year though, is that we've seen an uptick up to about 58%. Um, and so roughly 10% or a little over 10% of an uptick uh, in retention. And really what that probably means is a couple different things. People are tired of moving year over year over year. Yep. Um, they've become, they've become more, you know, um, sophisticated in that they realize that a 3% increase or a 4% increase isn't necessarily bad if they're still 25 bucks under market, let's right. say, right? Yep. Before it was an emotional thing to them, uh, I feel. You know, yep. two years ago, if I'm you're a renter of mine and you've been a renter for five years and I hand you a hundred dollar increase, you're just you're upset. Yep. Right. Even if you are 300 bucks under market, you may be so upset that you still leave, you know, over it yep. just to, out of spite. Right. Yeah. Like human nature and emotion. So the the bottom line is, I think you you see, you know, can draw your own conclusion. Right. But the the macro data states that the Metroplex as a whole is retaining more people. And we actually thought it was a delayed leasing season this year, yep. meaning less people out there in the marketplace looking. Yeah. Uh, but as it got more and more delayed and the weather played less and less of a factor as we moved from a really rainy and cold February and March, and now into you know April and May, you saw upticks, but not even close to the levels of traffic that we used to have. It's so funny you say that because it, and, and maybe it's just me and, and you hear about it a lot more, but like rain has that big of an impact on rents, people moving. I mean, one owner might get lucky because it rained the whole season and none of his people had the time to go out and shop new apartments. So they just redid their, you know, re-signed their lease. Right. And I don't think when you're, when you're underwriting a deal and maybe this is happening, I just, I've never bought anything in like a really rainy market. Maybe Houston would be one. Do you ever underwrite to it rains nine months a year here? So people are going to be stickier than they would be in, you know, California where every day is a good day to go shopping. It's a whole new hypothesis, man. Let's, I never, never let's really thought it. about it. <laughs> let's do it. I think it's like the very little things that people, it, it all goes back to like human behavior. Like why do people get out and go look because it's sunny and they just got a raise in their paycheck. I think one of the interesting things, you know, we're doing a lot of industrial buying specifically in the class B space. And one of the things I like about that is in almost every asset class, like if you're in an office and you start in a, you know, you just started your company, you're in a class C office, the goal, maybe not everybody, but in theory, the goal is to have the penthouse in the downtown class double A building. That that means you're kind of going. And then in retail, you might start, you know, in a retail center. You don't you're not on the end cap, but you're kind of in the middle. But the goal is to have the corner space. Um, multifamily. Every time you get that increase in pay, you go from a C to a B to an A to you know, living in one of streetlights deals on Knox Henderson and whatever. But in industrial, you just kind of get bigger within class B. The goal isn't to get necessarily to a class A facility or to. And so it's a lot stickier. So maybe my question is, 
I guess it's twofold. Are you seeing a lot of people, when people get pay increases, do they often jump from B to A? And if we hit a recession or, or time sink, do you have a percentage of A renters that will drop back down to B or just a maybe a thought? Yeah, I think it gets back to that paradox that I was talking about earlier where there's just such a small divide between class A and class B rent structures right now, um, especially in, again, in our Metroplex, right? That it becomes more interesting that, that, that you know, what what's really stopping somebody because from uh, just a logical thought process a b renter that gets a pay increase would go and pay 50 bucks more to be in the class a deal right, right? there are other factors at play right maybe there's they're in the beast the b deal in a specific market because they want that school district for their kids right yep. and i think that wins out amongst all other decisions especially when you're talking about families because despite in a similarity to what you're talking about but about business and business owners growing their business and want always wanting better what parent have you ever met that says ah, i want the same for my kid yep or or i want lesser for my kid right right yep. no they want they're gonna most parents will sacrifice what they can to provide for a better future for their kids right That's huge and and how is that best accomplished right it's best accomplished through better school system uh better education right or better better football program or soccer program or something like that which is usually accompanied by a great you know, educational program you know well organized yep. so so i think there's there's obviously a lot of factors that come into play yeah um, when you think about you know what are the metrics at looking at buying a deal or managing a deal in like great markets um but i think it's less about maybe the people you know getting that pay increase um or what will happen relative to that and more about what you know, macroly what's happening relative to affordability, right? right. Um, and, and what we've seen in the past, you know, for 10 plus years before this, um, the spread between like an A deal and a B deal is 150 bucks a month, right? Like that's the gap uh, between you or I leasing in an 80s property versus a 2000s property mm -hmm. for that same size, right? Yep. On a nominal basis. I hate quoting square footage basis yeah. because they're just irrelevant in most cases when you talk about renters. Yep. You know, investors love to talk about it. Yeah. But so what happens when we decompress to that natural spread? Yep. Because everything returns to some degree to its mean, right? So when we decompress to that natural spread of 150, does that mean that the A class deal dropped by 100 and and the B deal dropped by, you know, even more or do they both kind of stay does the B stay stabilized at say a thousand a month and the A now goes to eleven fifty instead of ten fifty, you know, to yeah. create that spread? That's really where it's the interesting thing about our business right now and where the macro economy is at. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of people believe that we're gonna, you know, we're obviously gonna have some recession at some point. Yeah. Um, but how does that really affect housing? Yeah. Right. Because people still need to live. Yeah. And so obviously there's a there's a supply component that we hadn't talked about, but ultimately let's you know, talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, every market's different, right? Yeah. DFW is certainly supply intensive. Yep. And in the short well. term, but long term we're still lacking. Yeah. We're always behind, but in the short term we're always ahead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, you need you need almost, you know, especially construction lenders to pull back 
to help absorb supply in our Metroplex. Uh, Houston as well. I mean, they can fire the jets tomorrow with the no, with with limited zoning that they have and start developing 20, 30,000 units like they're doing again. Yep. In no time flat. Well, and the 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 whole and it's it's a much deeper, longer conversation, but they need to build like right now the only stuff you can build is class A. You can give the land away for free to most developers and where, where construction costs are, they can't deliver a product that would that would fit a class B rent structure anyway. And so all you're seeing is class A, yet you, all you're hearing in the news and from city governments is like, we need more affordable housing, we need more affordable housing is, that is the next big, um, in my opinion, thing i'm hearing all the national developers talk about it i don't know if it's a combination of opportunity zones plus government help plus just getting rid of a lot of these upscale amenities that nobody uses anyway getting rid of balconies or just getting to what you said which is let's not talk about the square footage let's just talk about the absolute dollar cost and can people live in 400 square feet as well as they used to think of living in 700 square feet Right. Because that's the only thing I'm seeing right now that is going to get people to a, a less all out dollar amount is a m- more efficient living inside the unit. Right. It's, it, it's hard. That's going to be interesting to see as we I mean, certainly you could definitely see the hypothesis kind of grow of that, that that is where we're headed because, you know, you know certainly there will be ebbs and flows of construction costs. No, no question about that. Uh, but as people kind of continue to try to maintain their their value of living, right, that same school district or that same area and everything else is rising around them. And if wage wage inflation doesn't keep up with that, which it, traditionally it hasn't, um, well, you're going to see people probably have to compress into smaller and sure. small, smaller and smaller units. Well, if you look at like New York City or San Francisco or Chicago, Everybody jokes, oh, my, you know, I've got a relative that lives in New York City. They live in a shoebox. Well, that's kind of what happens to like really growing markets is people get comfortable living in shoeboxes because that's really the only other option. And well, think I, about it. Look at cities that U.S. is as young as a country, right? Mm-hmm. Look at the foreign markets, yep. you know, look at Europe, or Tokyo, those major cities uh, inside of those countries. Um, they have very, very small units, micro units, yep. right? And they've migrated to that over the course of, you know, many hundreds of years as, instead of a couple hundred years. Well, I mean, and think about everywhere you've ever lived. You went to your kitchen, you went to your toilet and took a shit and you and you went to your bathroom and or you went to your bedroom and went to sleep. You didn't use the study, the the waterfall, the the everything else that, that these things try and, and do. We all live in about three or four hundred square feet. We just pay for the other thousand to be around us uh it's the american like bigger is always better there's a huge deal right now all like in the early 2000s and late 90s all these people that were making all this money they would go build these twenty thousand square foot houses with well now they're all selling and all these new kind of baby boomer generation they're like we don't want twenty thousand feet they're expensive it's a headache we'll spend the same amount of money, but we would rather have two 4,000 square foot houses than one 20,000 square foot house. I think trend will be much smaller on the residential, but much better quality with more kind of uh, amenities. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. Yeah, 
bigger is better right especially here in texas as a as a guy that uh relocated here it's uh yeah it's no farce for those of you that are, don't no. live here <laughs> <laughs> was it uh in wisconsin where units smaller or was like living a little more traditional yeah it's i mean i would say that it's uh more conservative in nature right everything that you you would uh you know, I find as I travel throughout the country that um, a lot of the stereotypes are in place for a reason. Yeah. The Midwest is kind of known for its conservatism and kind of like, you know, the handshake and, you know, where people are, you know, they don't move as often. All of those kind of, you know, factors along with many others are, are really true. Yeah. So you see much lower turnover ratios, you know, retention ratios are much, much higher. We talked about here in Dallas in the 50s there it's probably closer to the 70s um as far as a percentage basis of people that stay year over year in a property right yep um they don't up there it's interesting now here we've had a boom for 10 plus years now of people buying uh 2000 like mid to late 80s properties and then redoing the interiors to an interior upgrade of whatever four thousand to ten thousand dollars a unit flooring you know, repainting the ca cabinets and refacing them and putting new appliances in, all that kind of stuff to raise the rents, you know, 150, 200 bucks a month. The Midwest, no one's really done that, you know, um, because I don't think anyone that has tried it or they, you know, people are so conservative and not trying to try to push that envelope as much. They don't uh, need granite countertops to be happy. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, so it is interesting, yeah, especially growing up for the first 30 years of my life there and moving down here and kind of experiencing a different culture. Not bad, um, definitely really enjoy this culture, yep. uh, but definitely a different culture and by means of just even inside the US. You do enjoy it. And I think that's another thing that uh, has, has been good um, and just something I've noticed about you over the last couple of years is you work relentlessly hard but you also have always reminded me like we got to have some fun too yeah. have you always been that way yeah i gotta cut loose a little bit right yeah. you know i you know one thing in particular for me that i've always had to work on is trying to find middle gear right yeah. my partners will it will head it will have a dinner and they're like you got to find third gear craig <laughs> you know <laughs> and i'm like you know i got no third gear my man it's it's either you need to we're relaxing we're having a great time um or it's or turbo good. time yep um, so it's, uh, it, it is nice, you know, I've tried to always, uh, find that time. Um, but now it, it's fleeing, you know, yeah. as we get, as we get older and kind of the kids the are getting older, business is getting bigger. Yep. Um, we talked a lot about the management side and we'd maybe kind of end on, you also buy apartments. So I think a lot of what we already talked about is applicable, but, uh, would you walk me through the process of how you think about a deal? Um, I know that they come in all shapes and forms, but what are kind of your, your big uh, boxes that need to get checked? Sure. Yeah. First it's, a, it's, it's about identifying the market and also, you know, constantly learning, right. And then not only learning, but applying those metrics, not thinking that you're so smart that you're going to outsmart the market. I think I've watched and I've heard from my mentors, for many years now, you know, the fact that a lot of people try to outsmart the market, right? They yeah. think that they read something or they experience something even sometimes in the market and they say, you know what, that was an anomaly. You know, we're gonna do it different this time, right? And that's the pure subject, 
the definition of insanity, right? Yeah. Um, and it's shocking how many times those discussions happen, even inside of our own investment committee. Uh, at times, where we're like, "All right, we tried this before, it didn't really work. What do we think it's going to turn out differently here?" And then we ultimately migrate away from that deal. But had someone not maybe brought that context into light, yep. you, we may have been kind of glassed over by uh, that deal and just kind of looking at it on paper, right? Right. You know, so you know, looking at that uh, as a whole first, you know, and and what markets you're trying to, you know. You know, ultimately, what are your yields? What are you trying to achieve? All of that stuff comes into play. So, you know, for us, it's an ebb and, an ebb and flow process, right? What are our investors really looking for right now? They want, you know, they basically want hard assets with security. And so we're, and they want the apartment space. And along with, we also do some industrial retail uh, purchasing as well. So they want current cash yield with minimal risk. Um, and therefore we manage LTVs and we manage kind of the markets that we get into too. Don't go too tertiary where, you know, we might not be able to ever exit yep. or if we lose a tenant that we won't be able to ever really replace them in any kind of realistic time frame. Right. Um, so uh, there are so many factors. I mean, yeah. we could do a whole podcast on just how we kind of look at, you know, the acquisition processes. We whole probably and should. That'd and be I, fun. <laughs> I could ramble for hours. Yeah. What kill like what's what are kind of the biggest things that kill a deal uh, besides price? Yeah, yeah. In t- today's environment, besides price, oof. Yeah, I mean, I mean that kills pretty much every damn deal. <laughs> it does. <laughs> but thinking back, maybe. I mean, I think for an investor, price is always at the forefront. But um, I, I, maybe the question is: you get a deal under contract, you're comfortable with price. What are some reasons why a deal would fall apart? Boy, you know, it, and you usually you close on everything that you put your you, I know you close on everything that you put your reputation behind and your money behind. But there are circumstances where something comes up that you didn't know what even yeah. existed. And I think that's a, that's important to bring up because, too, you know, we we do put our reputation out there um, on every deal that we, you know, go under contract to purchase. But it's also important to note that we don't you won't necessarily always close on all the deals either. You know, if you discover something during the due diligence process, good market or bad market, um, you shouldn't feel the pressure of having to still close that deal if it's if it's really something that's material that can't yep. be worked out by means of price. So ultimately, every situation that we've ever gotten into during that due diligence or inspection period, you could have been solved by price. Yep. Sometimes a small amount, sometimes a large amount, right? Very rarely is it something that's not tangible and has the origin of of price. Yep. You know, there's been a couple of times where, you know, we've looked at stuff and, you know, the the metrics change so dramatically that you couldn't pay us to take it. Right. Um, but that's so rare. Yep. That's so rare. And it, I think if you're not a first if you're a first time buyer or anywhere even close and, and I have a lot of great friends that are brokers, but you have if you're looking at the numbers that are on the broker's package and you're just accepting that as what it is, you have to run your own deal. Like I'm not saying their numbers are wrong, but they are a very positive. They're representing the seller. They're not necessarily representing the buyer. Um, and you have to fact check. I mean, I've seen way too many people, um, buy into the broker's numbers, accept them for what they are. And, um, 
yeah especially if it's your first or second time they're they're pricing in like a professional not a first or second time buyer no it's interesting yeah it, it's very interesting right because they're giving probably and a lot of times it's their performa right right and, and they're giving you the best case scenario right so a lot of times they're underwriting a hundred percent of the rent growth in the first year which is not achievable just by pure mathematical metrics right every lease is usually six to 12 months with the majority of them being probably closer to 12 months which means you can't actually even touch and increase those leases until you know somewhere of a weighted average of six months yep. right so just by if you were able to even raise the rents to the level in which they may state it in the package you could only touch half of that on an economic basis yep. um which nobody you know that or i shouldn't say nobody but a lot of the first time buyers that we run into or that go you know and experience a seminar or something like that and they decide that hey i want to syndicate real estate right because you know the jobs act really changed a lot of things um you know for the um the commercial real estate space a couple of years ago um, maybe now four or five years ago now it's been um where we can they can now crowdfund and uh, effectively raise money from iras um and also from you know kind of the you know less sophisticated um uh, investor right? right you no longer need to go like five plus years ago you'd have to go out to you know Country club money was kind of the least sophisticated money, but at least still those folks, you know, probably had some private equity investing backgrounds yep. where they would manage their own money a little bit into risky deals that are illiquid. Now you have a lot more of the renter or the investor base out there that is really truly unsophisticated. Yep. Despite meeting the metrics of what is a sophisticated investor. Yeah. Right. And that's typically the sign of a high market when unsophisticated investors have lots of money to throw around. Yeah. No, you talk about, you know, because we obviously we we integrate a lot of times uh, by means of creating management budgets uh, as part of the acquisition process. Right? right. And a lot of times the management companies obviously can perceived as being the conservative side. You got the broker as the aggressive side. You got kind of the management company as the conservative side yeah. and the guys are trying to kind of feed in the middle. Right. So. You know, it's constantly a struggle of defending the management budget of why do we why is it so much lower than the package or their underwriting and this deal just won't make sense if I you know you're our management company I'm like yeah well we're not going to do it any different than anybody else out there so this deal just doesn't make sense right but then they buy it and get vindicated because cap rate compression or the greater fool theory that's been present for the last four four years roughly yeah um, I mean, there are deals that are out there. We sold a deal last year that I had no idea. Someone you know, purchased a deal that we had very little cash flow on. They purchased it for 30% higher than our basis. It did make, makes no sense to me. They got to get money out the door. Yeah. I mean, really at the end of the day, it's a, it's a brick wall. It couldn't have cut expenses enough or raised revenue in the first year enough not to have negative cash flow. And who looks at a negative cap rate? Yep. when they buy stuff well interest rates going down and that market staying hot can you can sweep a lot of stupid decisions under the rug and not get caught for them but when the tide goes back you find out who's swimming naked yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> well this has been a uh 
I, I think we are going to do a part two more on just like the psychology of the deal and getting a deal done. And I think there's a lot of people that could learn a bunch from you on, on you, you see it from both ends as a buyer and as someone that's helping buyers. Um, yeah. Thank you for spending an hour with me today. I appreciate it, Chris. It's been fun. Yep. Thanks buddy. Hey everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes. It will help more folks discover each episode. You can also reach me on Twitter at Fort Worth Chris or our email at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again.